Colossians chapter 1, 24 through 29. And if you need a Bible, the ushers will be there to, to help you. I now rejoice in my suffering for you and fill up my flesh what is lacking in the affections of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God, which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God, the mystery which has been hidden from ages, from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. To them God willed to make known what are the riches of his glory of the mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we preach, warning every man, teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. To this end I also labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. You may sit down, and uh, the children will be excused for their worship time. Thank you, Lloyd. Uh, Please turn with me, if you haven't already, to the passage, or keep it open to where you're at, as we are in Colossians chapter 1. My name is Travis Fleming. I'm the teaching guy here at Village Bible Church, and uh, I'm grateful for Veronica being here today. As she was even sharing, I I laughed to myself because what she shared about from Tony Evans is actually what we're going to be talking about is what is your purpose? What, is, what does God want from you? We talk about purpose. As a matter of fact, there was a few years ago, uh, I guess it's over a decade now, there was a book that came out called The Purpose Driven Life. Do you guys remember that book? You might have seen it in stores by Rick Warren. And it became a huge bestseller. He's a pastor of Saddleback Church in California. And it hit a, just hit a real need in our culture because everyone wants to know, why am I here? In our, in our world today, we have a war of meaning. Everybody has a, a reason for, for something, and they want you to, to, to pursue your desires or whatever it may be, and people are left wondering, what am I here for? Am I to, to just enjoy life and eat and drink, and tomorrow we die? Am I to enjoy all these pleasures? Am I just to entertain myself? Am, what am I to do? What am I here for? And I think each one of us has asked ourselves that question. What am I here for? Why, why did God make me? It's interesting, as people have looked and tried to find their purpose, uh, there's been, of course, the, probably the greatest spokesperson for purpose outside of the Christian faith would be Oprah Winfrey. Now, this past week, I was looking at the New York Times bestseller list, and I came across the category under religion, and it had the top 10 bestsellers for works of religion. And I, I kind of quickly scanned through the list, starting at 10 and making my way down. And I saw some names that you might be familiar with. There was Tim Keller, his book on prayer, and one by uh, Ann Voskamp, for, for many of the ladies might know who that is. Uh, and I, I it piqued my interest to know what's number one. What's number one on the list? And it was, it was Oprah in, under religion. I found that interesting. And, and the title of her book was What I Know for Sure. And it was taken uh, from a column that she had written for O Magazine. And it was a, kind of a, a compendium, a, a compilation of sorts of where uh, her thoughts on life, on contentment, on joy, on gratitude, and all of these different things that she uh, had felt, this is how I am to live my life, what I know for sure. But as I kind of glanced through the, the uh, just let it, read a quick review of the book, I, I came across this. 
It's a little tag for the book and for Oprah. It, it says this, From all her experiences, she has gleaned life, or gleaned life lessons, which for 14 years she shared in, oh, the Oprah magazine's widely popular, what I know for sure. A monthly source of inspiration and revelation. Now, for the first time, these thoughtful gems have been received, updated, or revised, excuse me, updated and collected in What I Know for Sure, a beautiful cloth-bound book with a ribbon marker, packed with inside and revelation from Oprah Winfrey, organized by theme, joy, resilience, connection, gratitude, possibility, awe, clarity, and power. These essays offer a rare, powerful, and intimate glimpse into the heart and mind of one of the world's most extraordinary women, while providing readers a guide to becoming their best selves. Candid, moving, exhilarating, uplifting, and frequently humorous, the words, of, the words Oprah shares in what I know for sure shimmer with the sort of truth that, will, that readers will turn to again and again. Now, it's interesting. One of the other things that the, uh, that the tag says is that she is a creative force, student of the human heart and soul, and champion of living the life you want. Above her, I mean, Oprah stands alone. Now, I, I have to say, from, from, a, from a worldly perspective, I admire her in that what she is, the, the odds that she has overcome to accomplish what she's done, uh, I have to applaud her for that. But in the realm of faith, I, I, I have to stand away from her and what she's saying. Because she's talking about living your best life, but in, in her other interviews with her, she has completely rejected the God of the Bible. I mean, she has said, I reject. She, she has her own definition of God, and she's talking about finding joy in your true self apart from God. And many in our culture have tried to do exactly that, and people are doing it all the time. Trying to find your best life now, trying to find your joys, your pleasures, your purpose, but God has something totally different that is completely antithetical to what this world values. And she is indeed probably the greatest champion for this worldly philosophy. But God has something totally. He has a purpose for your life that he has made you and fashioned you to find your joy in him and in him alone. And today what we're going to do is we're going to look at the life of the Apostle Paul and see how this purpose was worked out. We're going to see the purpose of his life, how he spent and used his life for the glory of God, and how he found joy in the midst of it. Do you want joy? I want joy. How many people like being depressed? Do you like being depressed? I don't like being depressed. I don't like being down. I like to find my joy in God, and I find that I am most joyful when I am most filled up with God. When I'm able to experience God, when I'm able to fulfill and do what he has made me to do, I find great joy in God. So today we're going to find out how we can find this joy, find out what our purpose is, what God has made us to be and do for his glory and our joy. God doesn't just purpose us to do stuff that we don't have joy. God has made us to want joy to do things, to, to experience joy, but he wants us to find our joy in him, in him. Now, let's, uh, before we jump into our text, let's pray and ask for God's blessing on our message time. Our Father and our God, we come into your presence right now, longing to understand your purpose for our lives. And Lord, just as you had 
spoken through your servant, Tony Evans, and mentioned that if we can do our purpose without the Spirit of God, then we don't have your purpose. Lord, we need your purpose. We want your Spirit to guide us. We want to experience the joy that we can have in you. And we ask your blessing in our time together today. Remove all of these distractions from our minds and help us to focus solely on you. Speak to us, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So let's jump right into our text. Remember, the Apostle Paul is writing to the church at Colossae who is encountering some uh, difficulty, some heresy. And he's writing this as an antidote to counteract this spiritual virus that was infiltrating the church. And he writes up and begins in verse 24. He says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings. Let's stop right there. How many of us rejoice in our sufferings? How many of us, walk, I mean, do you rejoice when you go through a trial and you're struggling? And you, do you do that? Or do you hang your head down? And do you have a, you throw a party for yourself called a pity party. And you invite everyone else to come along. Do we all do, I think we all do that. Party for one. Uh, and and we, 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 we don't rejoice in our sufferings. But Paul can rejoice in his sufferings because he sees the purpose of his life. You know, you can endure anything if you know the purpose for why you, in, you go through it. You can go through any type of struggle if you know that there is joy on the other side. I remember uh, I was looking at my, my, uh, uh, my Jojo, my youngest son, and my wife was holding him today, and I was just remembering his birth, and I was remembering watching my wife. I hate watching my wife in pain and watching her in labor and just the pain of it and knowing that I can't do anything. I'm just, yay, push. <laughs> go team. I always laugh when people say, we're having a baby. I'm like, I ain't having a baby. She's having a baby. I'm on the 50-yard line cheering. Um, and uh, seeing, though, that pain that she went through to see the joy on the other side. Every mom knows that, right? That you will go through that pain because you know that there's going to be joy. And just like we go through our sufferings as Christians because we know that it's going to result in our joy. Now, Paul says straight up right here, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. I'm suffering for you. Suffering for you. And I rejoice in that fact. And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. That is the church. Now, that's a very strange beginning to discovering the life God wants you to have. Paul begins with rejoicing in his sufferings that he was going through for them. Now, we're going to come back to that lacking in Christ's afflictions here in a moment, but I want us to look forward to verse 25. He says, Of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. See, Paul had understood what his purpose was, that he had a ministry, that he was to help lead other people. Now, if we are to see and experience the joy that God has for us, we have to discover our ministry. You had to write that down. Discover our ministry. Discover my ministry. You can put that in your notes. What is your ministry? God doesn't just call pastors and elders and evangelists and people in professional ministry to ministry. That if he has saved you, then he has called you to be a minister on his behalf. That we are the priesthood of all believers. That we are considered to be priests of the Most High God. That he has fashioned us for his glory. 
That he's fashioned my sister Sherry, he's fashioned my brother Roy, he's fashioned us all for the glory of his name. That we might be mirrors reflecting back to God the radiance of his worth, and that when other people see us, they see Jesus in us and want to know who he is. That's what God has done, and he wants us to discover our ministry. What is your ministry? What has God made you to do? Now, you may not be a public speaker. You might be a behind-the-scenes person. You could be a person who, who is counting diapers, as our sisters said. But God had something else. And if God's Spirit is in you, as, as she mentioned, as Tony mentioned, is that if you can do God's purpose without God's Spirit, then it's not God's purpose. What is God's Spirit leading you to do? God has a purpose for your life, and He is changing us to fulfill that purpose. Think about it. Who's writing this letter? Paul. Now, was Paul the number one prospect in the Christian draft? No. Okay. This guy was bad news. He was enemy number one. He was on the Christian most wanted list, displayed on the wall, saying, avoid this guy. He's a spiritual terrorist. He's rooting us out. He's taking us out. He is coming against us. And yet God had a different plan, that God would transform his life and totally set his life on a different trajectory than what he had. I mean, Paul had all of the education. He had all of the, the, the right teachers, the right upbringing. He was from the right families. And his life was going this way, and God said, I'm going to take you in a different way. I'm going to take you, and I'm going to redirect your life to fulfill your purpose, or my purpose, for you. He wanted him to discover, and he found his ministry. And Paul was joyous, and he could have joy in the midst of that suffering because he knew he was doing what God made him to do. Now, before I go any further, I want us to look at this puzzling phrase in verse 24. Look at verse 24. And in my flesh... I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Now, there are several thoughts on this verse. At first glance, if we just read it just from the obvious reading right there, what is lacking in Christ's afflictions, it would appear that something uh, was lacking in Christ's uh, death and resurrection. But we know from the testimony of Scripture in, in this book, as well as all of the New Testament, that is not the case. Excuse me. That his death... Burial and resurrection were completely sufficient, sufficient to purchase our salvation. So that's not what it means. What then does it mean? It means, and in order to understand this meaning, we have to understand the word that's being used there, the word lacking. And there's another uh, similar word being used in Philippians 2.30. Now you can turn there with me if you want to. If not, that's okay. Uh, I don't have a page number for you. But in Philippians 2.30, there, uh, Paul is talking about a man in Philippi by the name of, of Epaphroditus. Now, Epaphroditus um, had, uh, was a member of this church at Philippi. They had heard that Paul was in Rome. He was going through a certain type of affliction. It, so they sent some resources. We don't know if it was his uh, like physical supplies, books, or finances. But by the, way, uh, by the hand of Epaphroditus, they send it to Paul. And Epaphroditus gets sick and almost dies. And Paul writes this letter to them. And in the verse 30, he says, For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Now, what was lacking in their service was not them giving something. It was their physical presence. 
They couldn't be there, so they sent Epaphroditus there as well. So what he's saying is, what's lacking in Christ's affliction, he's saying not that Christ, uh, his death lacked anything, but what it was lacking is their ability to see it firsthand. So what was, they couldn't see Christ's affliction, and Paul says, I am now being afflicted so you can see what it means to serve Christ. What was lacking in seeing these afflictions borne out for you that you can see through me tangible evidence of God's love for you and that I'm willing to suffer for you just as Christ did. I'm willing to go through hardship. So he wasn't, it wasn't lacking of salvation, Christ's afflictions. It was lacking in their observation. Now, we, we continue on. By Paul's suffering, they can see the depth of Christ's love and understand that as Paul suffered, Christ suffered all the more. And why did Paul do it? Because of Jesus' glory. And why did Jesus do it? So that they would be saved. See, the only thing that was lacking was Jesus' manifest presence so that the Colossians could see for themselves who Christ is and what he had done on their behalf. Now, Paul realized that he was doing this because God had called him. I want us to look at verse 25 of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that I received. Stewardship. Stewardship. The word there means household manager. That he becomes a household manager. That you've entrusted something to their care. And he said, he's entrusted something to my care. What has God entrusted to you? What has he entrusted to your care? What has he given you to be a good steward of? You know, it's interesting. It could be anything. It could be anything. It could be whatever you find in your hand to do. I remember uh, seeing that once in the Old Testament where, where God speaks to him and he says, what is in your hand? And it was a staff. And he was to use that staff for the glory of God. Or it could be a pen. It could be the ability to, to type and think and write. It could be the ability to serve. It could be the ability to, to sew, to work on cars, work on houses. See, God has, his purposes are, are, are manifold. There's so many of them that we have been gifted to do separate th- different things. And what has he gifted you? Not just in your physical talents, but what is he spiritually gifting you to do as well? So we do use these physical fleshly talents, but we can't fulfill truly God's purpose if we don't need the Spirit of God to help us fulfill it. So what is that? I mean, God has given us a a ministry of stewardship. Stewardship. He's divinely gifted you to bring his name glory. What are you to use? What does God want you to do? What step of faith is he asking you to take a step of faith for? Where is he asking you to go? Who is he asking you to talk to? What is God calling you to? What purpose does he have? What is he making you a steward of? Not just stewardship, but there's more. Secondly, we must understand that as you serve, or as we serve, that it may involve suffering. Anything worth doing and is really worth going through for uh, that it means something is worth suffering for. Tomorrow is Martin Luther King Jr. Day. Great holiday. And I, I was thinking about that and seeing this new movie coming out, uh, Selma. And uh, I, I was thinking and looked, researching, uh, remembering the march from Selma to Montgomery, remember to, to get the uh, Civil Rights Voting Act passed. And there was a lot of different racial tensions obviously going in. And, and uh, Martin Luther King was a, a big advocate of nonviolence. 
unlike Malcolm X, who was for violence, but Martin Luther King said, no, it has to be nonviolence. And so there was a organized um, the march across the bridge from Selma to Montgomery, the capital. And many of these protesters walked arm in arm, and as they walked across the bridge, they were met by Alabama state troopers who turned water cannons and tear gas on them. Now, television crews were there at that period of time and beamed into many Americans' homes where the civil rights struggle front and center that many of them had not seen. They'd heard about it. They'd seen pictures in the newspaper. But here they're seeing people nonviolently getting nailed by water cannons and beaten. And they stop and they ask themselves, what would possess a person to go through that? It must, they must believe in something so much and want it so much that they're willing to suffer for it. And, 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 and completely true. It was worth the effort. Completely worth the effort to go through that. See, as a follower of Jesus... We must be willing to suffer for the name of Christ. I think many of us are allergic to suffering. We don't like to suffer. I I think about that. How How much would I be willing to suffer for the name of Christ? Because when I'm willing to suffer for the name of Christ, when I'm willing to be marginalized, when I'm willing to to be ostracized at my workplace or possibly be fired or have people come against me and criticize me, that's really magnifying the name of Jesus. See, think about it. What were to happen if you were willing to be fired rather than sacrifice your integrity for something at work? You may be fired, but God will take care of you because you honored him. See, Paul rejoiced in his sufferings because he knew that when he suffered, others in the church would notice and be challenged to grow in their walk with God. And in their ministry before God, because it is through our suffering that God will reveal his salvation to others. That's the next point. Through our suffering, he will reveal his salvation to others. I've often asked myself that question. How much would I be willing to suffer for others to know who Christ is? See, I think of the Iranian-American pastor, Saeed Abedini, who is imprisoned right now in Iran because he, quote, undermined the Iranian government by creating a network of Christian house churches and attempting to sway Iranian youth away from Islam. See, he had a a tacit uh, agreement with the Iranian government that he could do his ministry because there are Christians in Iran, although they are a minority, but he couldn't evangelize. And apparently, according to them, he did or was perceived to, and he is now serving an eight-year prison sentence because of it. I mean, at the time, people were wondering if he would receive the death penalty for evangelizing. Now, let me ask you a question. If that were the categories of, of being persecuted, would you be persecuted? Meaning, have you evangelized? I mean, many of us wouldn't be indicted because we don't do it. We'd be all right with the Iranian government. Think about that. Why was this man imprisoned? Because he shared Jesus. How many of us would be imprisoned for that fact if that were the law in America today? Many of us wouldn't have any problem whatsoever because we don't evangelize. But God is calling us to. God is calling us to, to step out in hope. We might have been silent in the past, but you can speak those words now because God's Spirit is guiding you. Ask for boldness. So the apostles constantly prayed for was boldness. And I love the, the Scripture after they get dragged in front of the, the Jewish high court. And they, they, the, the Pharisees, who had all, these educa- you know, all this education and degrees, 
They say to them, they say about them, they say they were uneducated, ordinary men, but they notice one thing they'd been with Jesus. Have you been with Jesus? And you can't fail to talk about it. How is it that we can be more amazed at our, the newest movie we saw and share everybody with that, but we can't share Jesus? It's because we don't know who really Jesus is. We need to step back and really examine who he is all over again. You know, for the past 20 years, the organization Open Doors International has been keeping stats on Christians being persecuted in the world. And their research has indicated that there was a dramatic rise in Christian persecution in 2014. I don't know if you knew this or not. Making it the highest it has been in 20 years, and all indicators point to its continued rise. Now, the Center for the Study of Global Christianity estimates that 70 million Christians have been martyred in the last 200 years. 70 million. And for the first 10 years of the 21st century, 1 million Christians have been killed approximately 100,000 each year. Wrap your name around that. I mean, wrap your head around that thought. I mean, Aurora's about, what, 170,000 people? Over half the population of Aurora would be eradicated this year just because of their faith in Jesus. Violence isn't the only form of persecution, however. Some are ostracized from their families. Others are kicked out of their com- communities, while still others are denied or fired from their jobs. And I, I think we, we fail to see how much, how much persecution is going on now in the United States of America. Seeing the Atlanta fire chief fired because of his views of a, a religious book that he had written and had nothing to do with his job because of his views. You're seeing that happen more and more in the public square. The Christian religious liberty is being ripped away from us, left and right. Are we willing to stand true? Are we willing to, to, to speak the name of Christ, willing to endure hostility. Uh, I studied under a man named Todd Johnson when I was in seminary, who is the president of the Center for the Study of Global Christianity. He's the man who actually compiles the statistic on how many Christians there are in the world. The guy. I mean, not, not anybody else. It's him and his organization. And I studied with him personally. And he, he was telling me the story about a man who was a co-author of his by the name of da- David Barrett. And David Barrett uh, had pioneered this study of quantitating or, uh, yeah, the quantitative study of martyrdom. And he died in 2011 at the age of 83. And Barrett told uh, Johnson the story of when he was invited to speak of wealthy industrialists. They asked him what the most effective means of evangelism was so that they could invest their money to hurry up the evangelization of the world. This is how he responded. He said, we have been engaged in in in-depth research on this subject, and we think the most effective means might be Christian martyrdom. Think about that. All these guys, where can we throw our money behind? What program is working? He's like, basically people need to die for the faith, and the whole world will be evangelized in that regard. How many people are signing up for that class? There was an awkward silence in the room until one industrialist screwed up the courage and asked, Dr. Barrett, could you tell us the, most, the second most effective means of evangelism? It's true. See, Paul was willing to suffer for the name of Christ, even if it meant his own death. Look at Philippians chapter 1, verse 18 through 26. Flip there. That's on page 980 in your pew Bible, if you have one. Philippians 1, 18 through 26. Um, 
Paul writes, in talking about life and death, he says, Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. I don't hear a lot of amens there. To live is Christ, to die is gain. Uh, I'll reserve the amen until we're done with the passage. That's an amen. For if I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between this, these two, between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. See, he understood that to live meant ministry that resulted in glory, and to die meant even greater glory because we're in the presence of Almighty God. We're in the presence of Almighty God. I think many of us theoretically like being in the presence of Almighty God, the thought of it, but when reality kind of shifts, you're like, I don't want to die. I get to go be with Jesus. I get to go home. I get to be with Him and see Him face to face. Look at verse 25 of our text in Colossians chapter 1. So flip back there with me. Paul says, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. That my purpose isn't for me. It's not a selfish desire for myself, but it's for other people. See, a lot of the things that we see in this world today, when it talks about living for yourself, finding yourself, self-help, it's all about us. And here he's saying, no, I want you to give it away. I want you to invest helping others. Invest helping others. And here, he's saying, give it away. The word of God fully known at the end of verse 25 into verse 26. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to us, his saints. See, his sufferings were making the word of God fully known. The truth of the gospel, which was a mystery that had been hidden for ages. The word there, mystery, is mysterion. It's the Greek word mysterion. Something that, uh, it's not that couldn't be seen, but only could be seen through revelation. Notice when I read that passage earlier about Oprah, it was her, she had received revelation. Now here Paul's saying, no, this is a heavenly revelation from God himself. God has revealed this mystery. And this word mysterion means mystery, secret of which initiation is necessary. In the New Testament, it means the counsels of God, once hidden, but now revealed in the gospel, or some fact thereof. See, the Christian revelation, generally, particular truths or details of the Christian revelation, it is not something unknowable. Rather, it is something that can only be known by God revealing it. By God revealing it. The God revealing it to human hearts. See, people can espouse the name of Christ, but not have the the Spirit in them. And you have to have the Spirit in you for God to show it to you. And that's why we have so many different fleshly things going on in in so many churches. And so many people trying to to find a way to wed the church and the culture. 
because they're fleshly. They don't have the Spirit of God in them. Here he's saying that this mystery is revealed to us, the saints. It is not something unknowable. Rather, it is something that can only be known by God revealing it to us. Now, what was the mystery revealed to God's people? Look, the answer is in verse 27. Look at verse 27. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles. Gentiles, that's us. If you are not a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Judah, you are not Jewish. You're not Jewish. That means you are outside of the covenant of God. See, God had given a promised plan that it had been set up forth from the foundation of the world, that he'd made a promise, that he had purchased and purposed, or purposed, excuse me, man's salvation. The Garden of Eden wasn't and something that he wasn't prepared for. Like, oh no, we have to go into emergency mode. Red alert, red alert. It wasn't like that. It, it was, he understood what man would do, saw it, and then when Adam and Eve had eaten of the fruit, and before that fruit hit the ground, these words were being spoken where God was, had, had perch, or purposed man's salvation. And then he talks about the, that even then, that there would be a descendant of Eve who would come who would crush the serpent's head, but he would die doing so. And that's a picture. It's called the Proto-Evangelium, the very first gospel. It is a picture of Jesus, that he would crush the serpent's head, but he would die in the process. He would defeat Satan. He would be a descendant of Eve, would defeat Satan, but he would die doing it. Is that not a picture of the cross? From the very beginning in Genesis. And then it gets elaborated and expanded and drawn out through time. It goes to Abraham, and God chooses Abraham and says to him, Through you, all of the people of the world will be blessed. It meant through his descendant. And this plan, this promise, goes to his son, Isaac. Remember, he had two sons initially. There were more sons, but there was Ishmael and Isaac. Ishmael was the one born in captivity, he's not the promised son, he was Isaac. He was the promised son. And then Isaac had twin sons, Jacob and Esau. And that promise goes to Jacob. And we see this expanded throughout the book of Genesis. And then from Jacob, he has 12 sons. I'm not going to list them all. But it goes to the fourth son, Judah. And Judah, the tribe, expands. And when the nation of Israel splits into two, ten tribes go to the north, two stay in the south. The Judah tribe becomes more even bigger, and they become known as the people of the Jews. The Jews. So this plan was not just for them to provide salvation, but through them would bring forth the Messiah. And that gets honed from Judah, has to go down to King David. And David is told that he will have an everlasting house and an everlasting kingdom. And that is realized through Jesus and they missed this in the, in the, um, when, the, when Christ came. And, and many of them came to Jesus asking questions. And then Jesus, I always loved the fact that Jesus would ask questions back. And he, there was a point in time where he goes, let me ask you a question. In the Psalms, in Psalm 110, David says, he, he says, The Lord said to my Lord, let him sit at my right hand until I make his enemies his footstool. And then Jesus says, if the, if, or Jesus says, if David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? What he meant then was, is that he's David's son by descendancy, but yet he's the Lord of glory. He's incarnate. He is the son of the living God. And this mystery now has been made known to us that we who are Gentiles, born outside of the covenants of God, have been grafted into God's tree of salvation. 
We've been grafted in. We've been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. That his blood purchased us and put us into God's salvation. That we can become beneficiaries of his atoning work on the cross. That we who were once alienated away from the commonwealth of Israel have been brought in to this heavenly reward that God had purposed since the foundation of time. That we've been brought in to this wonderful, wonderful, magisterial presence of God. And that's what God, what is God saying to us is that we need to stop and think and marvel at this mystery. I mean, Oprah talks about awe. I'll tell you something. Stare at like that, staring in God's plan of salvation. Awe. Oh, Lord, my God, when I an awesome wonder consider all the worlds thy hands have made. I mean, that he would even send his son, that he created this God, big creator God, who fashioned all of the planets, all of the stars, everything that we see and know, that would purpose and plan to save us and use us. I marvel at that. That's a mystery to me. But it's a mystery made known to us, that we who are Gentiles can be brought near by the blood of Christ, that the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. See, this mystery involves all people now. That's what this mystery is about. All people. That's the, it involves all people. All people can be saved. doesn't matter what nation you were born in, what language that you speak, what your background is, that God can, his atoning death can save and transform you and give you hope and a future, that he can forgive your past, that you don't have to stay in your sin and be chained to it any longer, that you don't have to be the person that you were, that you could be someone else, that God would transform you. That's the amazing thing about it is God can transform and give hope. He is the God of second chances. He is the God of clean slates. He is the God of U-turns. That he is the God who can transform hearts and minds and will transform yours if you give your life to him. When you surrender to him, he will transform you. He won't leave you where you're at. He loves you where you're at, but he won't leave you where you're at. That he begins working in you and he gives the Spirit of God to you and he begins changing you. That he transforms all people now. Not just the Jewish people. And not just them, but we've been brought near by the blood of Christ. And it's about all people now. Now additionally, we can marvel, not because of all people can be saved, but because of the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you. In you. See, we can marvel at God's presence in us. God's presence. God coming into your life. Think about that. This this past week, we moved into our new house. And uh, I've been trying to get this house ready uh, for uh, three weeks. And I'll tell you one thing I know for sure. I hate wallpaper. (laughs) I hate wallpaper. And I'm not good at painting. I'm too impatient to paint. And I'm, I'm getting this house ready, and, and it's, it was a good house. It's a good house. It's a great house. And, but taking it off, trying to make it our own. And we got all of our stuff moved in, and, and it's just everywhere. And we got to make it, you know what it is, you want to make your house your home, right? You got to put your pictures on the wall, and put your TV over there, put your couch in this place, and put your dishes in this place, and set it up the way that you want it to be, right? Because you want to get rid of that old and make it your own, right? 
See, when Christ comes in you, he moves in. And he begins moving things around, taking things down that he doesn't like, cutting out some walls here and there, removing the wallpaper of sin. Yeah, I said it. Wallpaper is sin. (laughs) Moves the wallpaper of sin. He starts sanding some things down, and it gets messy in there, does it not? You get a little, gets a little, some of that dust gets in the air, it gets hard to breathe, because he's changing in you and making you, and it's uncomfortable. But he's making you into something glorious, because he's setting up residence there. He's going to live there, and he's changing us from the inside out. God's presence, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Hope, hope. We can't live without hope, right? Hope. I mean, every year, come August, I am hopeful that the Bears will win a game. And every year, I am disappointed. I feel like a Lions fan. Right? That's when I wish I was born in Green Bay. (laughs) And I I have hope. And and the same with baseball season. Every year, we all get We all get excited. Why? Because there's hope, but then reality kicks in, right? Now, with the gospel, there's a hope that will not ever disappoint, that it will always find its way to completion, and it will be better than what we thought it was going to be. That's real biblical hope. And he's saying, Christ in you, that's a deposit. God has given his spirit to help make you, and he's going to complete that in heaven. Where you will be like him, for you will see him as he is. That's the hope of glory. No more, no more sorrow, no more tears. Greatest joys and pleasures this world. I mean, this world can't even, can't even be a warm-up act for. Christ in you, the hope of glory. And all of that will result in praise to God. Praise to God. Notice verse 27. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this ministry. See, why did God make this known to us? That his name would receive praise and we would increase in joy. You hear me pray that all the time, almost all my prayers, that God might receive glory and we might increase in joy. That's purposeful. Because see, God wants us, when we praise him, he communicates himself to us. See, it's in the process of being worshipped that God shows himself to us. God does this for his glory, that we will praise him and we will grow in even more joy. We'll be excited about who he is. Are you excited about who God is? I mean, for crying out loud, I think sometimes that we're just Christian wet blankets. I mean, we don't get excited about anything anymore. I, I need that blood drive here to see if you've got a pulse. I mean, is your heart beating? Are you legally dead? I mean, what do I need to do? Put the paddles of the Holy Spirit? Shock you? Like, we need that. We need God to wake us up to the reality of who he is and then begin to praise him because he starts to communicate himself to us. But that is not all. Look at verse 28. Verse 28. Him we proclaim. You know what? We don't proclaim morality. We try to clean people up before we put them in the shower. We got to put them in the shower first. That is the shower of God's presence, and he cleans them up. That's what we have to do. He's saying, here, him we proclaim. It's Christ crucified, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature 
in Christ. See, the heartbeat of our faith is Christ himself, Christ crucified. As Paul said to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 1, 22 through 24. Turn with me, page 952. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22 through 24, page 952. Paul writes, For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. It's Christ, Him crucified. He's the one we proclaim. And what we are proclaiming, what are we proclaiming about Him? That He's the Lord of glory, the one who was crucified for your sins and mine. In fact, we read here that we are to be warning everyone. The word warning means admonish, to put into the mind by reasoning. We are to warn them. Yes, we are to love them, but we're also to warn them. Warn them about what? What are we warning people for? We don't like that idea. We don't want to be the one going around going, danger, Will Robinson, danger, Will Robinson. That doesn't want to, we don't want to be that way from a spiritual standpoint. But he's saying here, we are to be warning people. Turn with me to page 927. 927, that's Acts chapter 17, verse 30 through 31. We're getting near the end. This is what we're warning them about. Acts 17, 30 through 31, page 927. The Holy Spirit, through Dr. Luke, writes, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands, not asks, commands, all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. We're to be warning everyone, judgment's coming. We don't like to talk about that. Christians are always getting criticized for being judgment. But you know what? Christians are going to be criticized no matter what we do. We've got to stop apologizing for that. I hear so many people and see so many articles coming up saying, oh, we do this, we do that. Yes, we do. And no matter what we do, unbelievers aren't going to be happy. There's always going to be a critique. It doesn't matter. Be, be bold. And sometimes I think what Satan tries to do is he tries to shame us into silence because of previous people screwing things up. And that might be so. We can't be silent. We have to proclaim the truth of the gospel, warning everyone. You know, judgment's coming. It's a day that is fixed, unchangeable. Think about that. I mean, we prepare for a lot of days. Prepare for your wedding day. Do you prepare for your wedding day? Did you prepare for it? Did you prepare for college when you went out to college? Or did you prepare for your new job? Did you prepare for it? Maybe you were in athletics. I remember when I, when I got into sports and I got my jersey and I was, I was just looking at my jersey going, wow, preparing myself for that. And on my wedding day, I was freaking out, preparing myself for my wedding day, saying, I'm getting married. What am I doing? <laughs> it was the greatest day, greatest day. I was scared, but I didn't need to be. She should have been. <laughs> Love you, honey. See, we need to be prepared, though, for God's judgment. And we're prepared if you got Jesus. If you got Jesus, you don't need to worry about it. You don't need to worry about it. It's not something that has to bother you. It's only those who are not holding on to Jesus that need to worry about it. See, God wants us to grow. 
God wants us to warn other people. He wants to speak the truth of Christ, proclaim him. Judgment is coming, and we need to be prepared. We need to grow into the salvation that we espouse. Are you growing? Is your influence growing? Is your ministry growing? See, notice, Paul says, we're to be warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. You've got to grow up in your faith. See, the goal is to grow up in our faith and then lead others to maturity. Lead others to maturity. We're to be leading others. This is not a Lone Ranger thing. This is not a by-yourself thing. This is to be leading and discipling other people. You can't stay a baby Christian. The Scripture is clear on that. Turn with me to, this is the last passage I'm going to have you turn to, Hebrews chapter 5. That's page 1003. But Hebrews chapter 5, if you don't want to turn, that's fine. Just listen in. Uh, We read, About this we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the world of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. We're to grow in the faith, not stay where we are. Now, this past week, uh, actually a few weeks back, and it's becoming more obvious this week, my son, Jojo, has started to walk. Okay, started to walk. And there's a part of me that says, yay, he's walking. There's another part of me that says, whoa, he's walking. Because now i got to put stuff back on the shelf. i got to watch at all times that he doesn't grab a knob or a lever, something that he's not supposed to do. And though it's a little bit inconvenient, I really, I mean, I'm glad that he's walking. The bad thing would be if he'd stay crawling. See, we, he needs to grow up and learn to walk for himself and, and do different things for himself. As Christians, we can't continue to crawl. I think many of us are crawling spiritually. We need to stand up and walk. We need to learn what it means to walk with God. We need to grow in that maturity, get our balance, if you will. How do we lead others to maturity? First of all, it requires proclaiming the whole counsel of God. Leading others to maturity means proclaiming the entirety of God's word, beginning with Christ. We don't get to choose bits and pieces and leave other stuff out. We must proclaim the whole counsel of God. I'm going to walk through these rather quickly. It also requires us being in proximity to others. Paul says, For this I toil, struggling with all this energy that he powerfully works in me. Now the word, it's interesting, the word toil simply means labor. Ministry is work. If you think that you can fulfill God's purpose without some type of labor, then you've got a, you've got a problem. It's going to require work, labor. And then he says, struggling. With all the, his energy, struggling means, uh, it comes from the Greek word agonosominos, and means to contend for a prize, to struggle, like being in an intense athletic contest. He was struggling to lead others to maturity, which means he worked with people and he agonized with them, and he had to get close to them, coming alongside them, working at developing relationships, sharing who Christ was. He was working to, uh, for the name of Christ, but working with people, and then he needed to be near them. And it may be because we, don't, we can't do this very well is because of what we said earlier. We lack Holy Spirit power. If we're to fulfill God's purpose for our life, then we have to have the Holy Spirit in us, directing us. And the Holy Spirit is if you have trusted in Christ, if you have repented of your sins and invited him and received him as Lord and Savior, God's Spirit is in you. Now you are to be filled with that Spirit. Paul says, struggling with all his energy, the word is dunamis, often translated power. 
He's referring to the Holy Spirit. The power of the Holy Spirit working in and through him. We need God's power. We need his, his strength, which means that we have to learn how to fight sin and feed the Spirit of God, taking in the things of the Spirit of God, reading the Word of God, being under the preaching of God's Word, fellowshipping with other believers, serving. These are all things whereby the Spirit of God works in and through us for His glory and our joy. Now to conclude, what does God want? He wants to give you Himself. That's it. He wants to give you Himself, which means that results in hope. We all need hope. That leads to heaven holiness. God wants to give you himself, to have you do what he has created and commanded you to do, to delight in him. He wants to come into you, to live in you, to set up residence, and make you into the person he wants you to be. That requires your response, your surrender, laying down your arms. It's not about following Oprah, but God. He's the God of hope, the God that can heal, the God gives us heaven, the God that gives him himself. It's not, about what, it's not about what you want. It's about what God wants. And that is giving, and that is himself, for his glory and your joy. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. I thank you that you are the God who cares, that you are the God who is there. And Lord, I pray that you do continue to speak through each one of us. Help us to see how we can fulfill our ministry wherever we are and whatever it is that we find ourselves doing. But Lord, we pray that we might be sensitive to hear your Spirit's voice speaking to us and through us. Lord, we want your purpose more than any fleshly purpose, Lord, because we know that those fleshly purposes can, can send us to hell. So we want to fulfill our, our heavenly, what we were made for, our heavenly goal. That is to know you and have you live in us. Lord, please, we plead with you to continue to speak to our hearts. Use us. Help us to see that you are with us, that you are going through the fire with us, that you are, you are our advocate, you are our cheerleader, that you are uh, the one we love and gave himself to die for us. We ask you to bless us and use us for the glory of your name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.